Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that's not only important for the history of our country, but really for America in the 21st century, the legacy of the progressives, talking about who the progressives were, who the progressives are, what's their understanding of the world, of government, of society, and of what a just regime looks like. And what importance do they still have for today in the way they're shaping American life, American society, and American politics? And to be joined for this important conversation today by Professor Jason Jividen. Jason is a professor of political science at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He is also a fellow at the Center for Political and Economic Thought located at St. Vincent. Uh, Jason received his BA and his MA from Marshall University and his PhD from Northern Illinois University. Um, he, he teaches a lot of courses at St. Vincent, but of course he's also a, a long old friend of the Ashbrook Center, for which we really appreciate his time and efforts on our behalf. Teaches courses in our Master of Arts in American History and Government uh, on things like the Progressive Era, uh, American statesmen, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and of course on the First Amendment, among others that he's taught. He also teaches uh, in our Teaching American History seminars that we do for teachers around the country. He's a regular there and doing great work for us. Terrific teacher, uh, a serious and wonderful conversationalist in leading seminars, and we really appreciate his work on that. Uh, also a terrific author, uh, wrote a really important book, um, now it's been almost 10 years, doesn't seem like that long, Jason, but it's a great book and has stood the test of time, uh, which not all academic books do, but it's called Claiming Lincoln, Progressivism, Equality, and the Battle for Lincoln's Legacy, a very important book uh, in American political thought and American political development. He's also the editor of a core documents reader for Ashbrook uh, on Populists and Progressives, which is a wonderful collection of documents that is really essential reading for anybody, whether students, teachers, or citizens, who's interested in that important part of American history and American life, the populists and progressives. And Jason, you're now working on a, a new project. Uh, what's that all about? That's correct. We're, uh, PH is doing a series of companion volumes to some pre-existing primary source collections. And so I'm working on a, a companion volume to uh, Gordon Lloyd's uh, commentary or, or primary source reader on the American founding. So the, the title right now, the working title is a narrative history of the American founding. And it uses primary source documents as a jumping off point to give some commentary on 
historical context, political theory, um, you know, what are some of the ideas that are being kicked around at the time of the founding and how are we uh, still thinking about those things today? So it's a short volume, but it's intended to be a classroom uh, resource for, for teachers. Fantastic. Look forward to seeing that. Um, the legacy of the progressives. The progressive is a term now that's back in vogue. I, I remember a time when um, people on the political left and center left of, of American politics called themselves liberals. Um, it looks like maybe the Reagan revolution didn't succeed in everything, but it did succeed in sort of making liberal a bad term. Right, right. <laughs> so everybody on the left now wants to call themselves progressives and progressive. But that term also has a, a historical importance. When we're talking about the legacy of the progressives, historically, who were the progressives? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're old enough to remember that change in terminology. I am too, so it makes it feel a little bit better. Um, <laughs> We've got something in common. <laughs> that's right, already out of the gate. Um, you know, we talk about the legacy of the progressives, if, if especially if teaching students, you know, the sort of conventional textbook version of things, and it's, it's always fun to maybe turn those over a little bit. But roughly when we talk about the progressives, we're often talking about the progressive movement or the progressive era. And in doing so, we're roughly talking about the period from, say, the late 1880s up until around the 1920s, where you saw uh, not only a political movement, but an intellectual movement, a reform movement that was really centered in and around this new change to an industrialized, urbanized economy. Uh, Post-Civil War, you have increasingly people that are not tied to the land as much as they are to factories, to wage earning, so closing of the frontier. It's hard to go out and be a pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of Jacksonian yeoman farmer. Um, you have in increasingly people are rendered in some ways more economically dependent than they used to be uh, to wage earning. There's more economic specialization. And, and frankly, there's just much more concentration of wealth in a way that we hadn't seen before in the country. So there really are new circumstances. It's the turn of the century. And so many progressives, not only in the political realm, but also especially on college campuses, uh, we're talking here often about intellectuals, had, had picked up some momentum that had come from things like populist agrarian movements, say the Grange or the Farmers Alliance in the 1880s. And it melded together that with um, increasingly new urban workers organizations or suffragist organizations or the temperance movement or certain Christian reformers. And those things all sort of gelled or coalesced into what more or less we call the progressive movement. And folks that are a lot smarter than I am often will remind me to say, well, it's hard to talk about the progressive movement as a single coherent movement simply because there are these disparate elements. Um, one thing that really stands out is the, the emergence of increasingly German-trained PhDs in things like political science, what you and I do for a living. I mean, the, the, the notion of a professional political scientist is really relatively new in the, the American experience, um, sociologists, anthropologists, and also PhDs in philosophy. And so you have this interesting sort of um, amalgam uh, of various folks looking for political and economic reform at the turn of the century. But there are some things, despite all of these differences, there are some things they have in common. And, and I think the commonalities are largely and the idea that the, the political system as it was handed down to us from prior generations needed to be seriously, if, if not reformed, at least rethought and reapplied to be able to deal with the challenges of a new economy. Um, I think there was a, a notion that um, the prior tradition as it had been handed down was one of limited government, um, one of a kind of, it was perceived at least as a kind of rigid constitutionalism, um, one that was, uh, in some ways dated, and I think many progressives would say in its embrace of things like natural rights. Um, many progressive, especially intellectuals, came to take issue with even the truth of that notion. And if we if we disagree on you know the nature and basis of rights, we might very well disagree on the means of government, what government should look like. 
And so that's something they have in common. The other thing, just in the term itself, progressivism, I mean, ism is an ideology. I mean, if we take it quite literally, progressivism is an ideology of progress, which means it wants to not just think for the sake of thinking or for the sake of truth for its own sake, but for political action. It wants to do something in the political realm. And so what unites a lot of those different elements of progressivism, I think, is a dedication to some notion that the human experience, human nature is progressing. It's getting better. And, and the engine of that getting better might differ according to thinker or according to politician or according to statesman or speechmaker. It could be some notion of a historical dialectic, think Hegel or Marx or something like that, that ideas are bouncing into one another and out of those that bouncing, a better idea will come to replace the old one. Or oftentimes it was sort of a vague notion of a, a kind of Darwinian, even biological evolution of human beings that could be um, made better by human planning through education, uh, maybe even through breeding. Um, it's a pretty, pretty interesting time uh, to read those sorts of writings. So um, I think the dedication to the notion of progress in some fashion is really what ties them together. But that's, that's how we started. I, I think that, as you said earlier in your opening comments, that um, progressivism never quite went away. You know, I think, again, the sort of history textbook version is it's an era to be replaced by another era to be replaced by another era. But I think progressivism has long legs, and I think we still see um, considerable elements of the progressive movement are very much operating today, um, intellectually and, and politically. So who are some of the major figures that our listeners might have heard of or maybe haven't heard of yeah. for this early 20th century progressive movement who were really important in fundamentally shaping progressivism? Sure. Um, I think in, maybe we'll start with people they have heard of, uh, folks like Woodrow Wilson. Um, uh, Wilson, of course, was not only a president, he was also a political scientist. He's the only political scientist to have been a president. A long history of academic writing prior to his political uh, political career. Um, a really good example of someone we would consider in the practical political realm, one of the architects of progressivism. His, his thumbprint um, is very large on the development of the presidency, the development of administrative agencies, how we just talk about how American politics works. Um, another would be Teddy Roosevelt, who, of course, um, it's worth pointing out that you know, progressivism cut across political parties. It wasn't defined to one particular party. There were progressive Republicans. There were progressive Democrats. There was a, a most people would know Roosevelt as a progressive because of his 1912 bid for the presidency under the, the, the banner of the Bull Moose Progressive Party. But that party was really a, a personal party that sprung up around TR. It was short-lived, but progressivism cut across the political spectrum. And so TR is a good example of someone who, at least I argue, that began always as a progressive Republican reformer, but became in, increasingly um, friendly with progressive projects and ideas as his career moved along. And so by 1912, he's embracing things like the initiative, the referendum, the recall, you know, direct election of senators, things we associate with progressive platforms. And so TR is another great example of folks who someone's heard of. Um, the famous social worker, Jane Addams. My wife's a social worker. She, she obviously went to the Jane Addams School of Social Work and wound up going elsewhere. But someone in our family that I knew about long before I was studying Woodrow Wilson, I knew all about Jane Addams from my wife. And so Jane Addams, of course, founder of Hull House in Chicago, um, part of the social gospel movement. Uh, often people will associate um, with the suffrage movement and uh, the uh, settlement house movement in the United States, which is very influential. Maybe some folks that, that we talk about, especially in our graduate programs at, at, at Ashland, that maybe folks haven't heard of, uh, but were extremely important to the time, um, were some of the intellectuals and journalists that maybe we don't read as much today or hear about as much today because they weren't office holders. So people like um, Herbert Crowley wrote a famous book in 1909 called The Promise of American Life, extremely influential in uh, progressive circles. He was the founding editor of The New Republic, a, a journal, a magazine that still exists, a progressive magazine. 
um, he coined the phrase new nationalism, which TR borrowed for his 1912 uh, run for the presidency that he, with Curley's permission. Um, one of the architects of, of the progressive movement. Another is uh, Charles Merriam, which I know Jeff and I would have studied probably in graduate school at some point, famous University of Chicago political scientist who was extremely influential, not only on the intellectual side, but in the political side. He was an advisor to several presidents in a very long, distinguished career. Um, another person I think folks have heard of, but maybe they don't associate so much with, you know, T.R. or Wilson would be someone like John Dewey, right? At one time, America's philosopher, a very famous American philosopher, who came a little bit later in the stream and wound up being very influential on um, the transition from progressivism to really what became the political thinking of the New Deal. And so Dewey's a really nice person to look at as kind of a bridge between the progressive era and what followed it. And so there's some folks maybe that, that folks have heard of, and, and we mentioned that populist and progressist reader, all of those folks are in that reader. So if folks are interested, they could take a look at that and find some nice primary sources. Thinking about uh, some of the commonalities of these various figures, Crowley, Wilson, Dewey, Teddy Roosevelt, Jane Addams, um, all as you say, important both publicly and intellectually giving heft to the progressive movement and the progressivism. Um, can say a little bit more about the progressive view of the American founding. You alluded sure. to it a little bit, but yeah. things like, um, I'm thinking of sort of uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, discussion of the author and signers of the Declaration, sure. the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. What was the progressive view of those founding American documents? Yeah, Wilson's a good place to start. And, and, and there are other folks, there's some nuance, but there is, I think, some real commonality and it's helpful to think about the Declaration and the Constitution is, is very much being two sides of the same coin or working together in, in the thinking of the American founders. So start with the Declaration, for example. Um, Wilson was very open, especially as an academic, in, in critiquing what he thought were some either mistaken first premises or, or truths that no longer were relevant or they'd become less true in the course of history. And what he had in mind was especially the Declaration's notion that the purpose of government is to first and foremost secure natural and inalienable rights. These things are true according to the laws of nature and nature's God, that using our reason, we can think about human behavior and look at how we live together and really come to understand that human beings flourish under a certain set of political guidelines. They might not always be hard and fast rules. We have to use prudence to figure them out. But, you know, good governments first begin from the point of view that we're supposed to secure above all the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, among others, like the right of conscience, also seen as a natural and inalienable right. And what Wilson and many other progressive academics argued was that we now know in light of the progress of, of modern social science that those things just aren't true. That if you begin from the premise that there are certain things that are true everywhere and always about human beings, we know that in the flux of history that human beings can evolve, they can change. And so what might have been true in 1776 with regard to human nature might not be true in 1912. And so that, that's the beginning of a much broader argument. The argument runs something like this. People like Thomas Jefferson or before him, people like John Locke, who believed that government, at least theoretically, came about by notion of a social contract. We imagine something like the Declaration where people consent to be governed in order that that government secures their pre-existing, pre-political natural rights. Wilson says, we know now from anthropology and history that social contracts don't really seem to happen. Rather, societies evolve organically. They evolve in the flux of time. And they're not to secure rights because we now know there's nothing true that transcends history. Rather, rights evolve and develop in light of historical and economic circumstances. So what might have been a right for Thomas Jefferson need not be a right for Woodrow Wilson. And so what, what, what he does to the Declaration is he changes the, the way the theory operates. 
rather than saying we form governments to secure rights that we already have, independent of government, that would exist everywhere and always for every human being, he rereads the declaration to suggest that what we're doing as a people is making a deal with our government to decide what the content of our liberties are. So it becomes conventional in light of circumstances, and it very much becomes a matter that government might accord you and help to define what your liberty is, and you are giving them power in exchange for that bargain. And so the best way he encapsulates it is, is um, to an address to a Jefferson Club in Los Angeles where he says, if you really want to understand the declaration, says Wilson, don't, do not repeat the preface. In other words, ignore the first two paragraphs, the things that all of us probably memorize sentences from, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera. Wilson says that's not the important part of the declaration. Because oh, to many to many Americans, at least prior to Woodrow Wilson, that was the most yeah. important and famous Precisely. parts of the declaration. Precisely. And he says, just don't repeat it. Ignore it. The most important part, he says, is a list of grievances, the Bill of Particulars, where you see a particular people in a particular time defining a very particular notion of liberty. And that might very well change. And so he uses that, as do others. Um, Herbert Crawley, for example, uses that as then saying, well, we are now at our particular moment in, say, 1908 or 1912, to where we're going to define our particular liberty. And that means redefining, and, and many times for many progressives, the notion of property rights. At the end of the day, I think that the nervousness, the, the critique, the concern about natural rights for many progressives was about rights to private property that, that many folks had argued. To take, for example, the Lochner era Supreme Court. That there was a notion of liberty of contract embedded in the notion of natural rights that meant that progressive reformers ought not to be regulating things like working hours or safety conditions. And so many progressives, I think, uh, people like Oliver Wendell Holmes among them, argued that all of this natural rights business just gets in the way of efficient progressive reform. And so we need not believe it. We don't think it's true, and it's become a practical stumbling block. And so that's really the, be the beginning point of, of thinking about the founding and the progressives to say that natural rights leads unnecessarily to a notion of limited government with which we are ready to uh, dispense. We're ready to dispense with it. Related to that, and Wilson's another good starting point, but again, folks like Herbert Crowley, um, Teddy Roosevelt, um, Frank Goodnow, famous scholar of public administration, took sort of a next step in that and suggested, and Wilson most famously, that, okay, if, if we're ready to tinker with the notion of limited government in order to secure progressive reform, maybe redistribution of wealth in some capacity, or the regulation of the, the private sector and of the economy in a way that we haven't seen yet in this country. It might also require a rethinking of the U.S. Constitution. And I think the main thing that they take issue with is the very doctrine of separation of powers, Wilson being the most famous example. The separation of powers was an unnecessarily calcifying doctrine that if you, he says, liken it to the organs of the body, he says, if you have the organs of your body checked off against one another, the body's going to die if your heart is constantly competing with your lungs. And so he uses a Darwinian metaphor. It's very famous. He says, living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. They must evolve. They must develop. And he says, all we're asking for as progressives is to not be so concerned with checks and balances, separation of powers, representation, indirect democracy, and be more willing to maybe give government a freer hand, especially administrative bodies and, and perhaps presidents, to go out and solve problems that are facing the American people as we perceive them. And so the, 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 the problem wasn't so much with the Constitution itself. It was with our dedication to certain interpretations of it. I see. And, and so for Wilson, that meant a rereading of the Constitution. And so do you have these progressives 
actually saying, people like Wilson and Crowley and others saying, look, the founders were just flat out wrong and we ought to reject them? Or are they saying, look, they might've been right for their time. There's some important things that we can learn from them, but we just need to make some tweaks and modifications. Yeah. I think it's usually usually the latter, um, that the, the founders might've been right for their time. This is sort of the, the interesting rhetoric of a historicist kind of way of thinking about politics is to say, lots of things were right for their time, but now we've evolved or progressed or changed to such a degree that those things can be tweaked in light of current circumstances. The only place where maybe I could think that they would say they were just flat out outright wrong was in their embrace of the notion of the state of nature and social contract. I think that's where many, at least academics suggested that we just we just now know better than what the founders did. But when it comes to the, the practice and the nuts and bolts of government, I think their argument is often um, the things that they thought might've been true and worked very well, it's a kind of pragmatism. They work very well for 1776 or 1789 but they're not going to work for 1912. So um, did they, did they, um, if, if they're saying we've moved beyond the founders, we, we, we need to rethink these founding principles and institutions and redefine them for our time. Did they have a generally positive or negative view of founders themselves like Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or Alexander Hamilton or George Washington? Right. Um, it's hard to find, Here's what I'll say. Among academics, I think you'll more likely see a kind of ambivalence, but among politicians, you're very unlikely to see an outright critique of the American founders. Um, there's a rhetorical need. There might even be some real truth in it, but I, I'm not very familiar with progressives who just outright throw the founders under the bus, as we say. One, one example that would be someone like Wilson and talking about Jefferson. He, he, he both is required by the political realities of the time being in the Democratic Party to pay homage to the, the founder, you know, the, the, the great grandfather of the Democratic Party. But on the other hand, he's more than happy to say things like this, that Jefferson was far too French to ever be considered an American. Oh, really? right? And what he meant by that was that he was dedicated to abstract political thinking. And so he tried to suggest he sounds more like a, um, a, a Rousseau than an Edmund Burke. Something along those lines. And so there are little jabs here and there, but for the most part, among people like uh, Roosevelt, for example, wrote voluminous histories. I mean, if people haven't delved into the writings of Tessie Roosevelt, there's 20 volumes worth of excellent um, politics and history, and he was a biographer. And so a great admirer of Jefferson, a great admirer of Washington and Hamilton and, and other statesmen after the founding era. So I think there's an admiration there among many progressives, but they've just convinced that their ideas have become um, outmoded by contemporary circumstances. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser, professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. Did they think they themselves were following 
in were they did they think they were bringing something new to America or did they think they were following in the in the legacy and the footsteps of others say like an Abraham Lincoln yeah I think depending on the uh, it's, it's hard to generalize but I think depending on the person you're reading sometimes they'll suggest that we're merely updating or refreshing a kind of Jeffersonian take but other times there's an argument that we've come across something new um, at the turn of the century. And you, you mentioned Lincoln, and, and I've, I've done some work in that area, as you mentioned earlier, with a, a book that's well past its best before date, but still holds up pretty well, I think. But on, on Lincoln and the progressives, Lincoln's a good example that um, progressives became very enamored uh, with Lincoln as a statesman, as an example of someone who did, in fact, improve upon the founding. Um, maybe working um, you know, in paints provided by the founders or painting a new picture. And their argument was largely very similar across folks like Jane Addams or Herbert Crowley or Teddy Roosevelt, um, Woodrow Wilson. And the argument was usually the same, that Wilson or that, that Lincoln, in coming to um, deal with the problems of slavery expansion in the 1850s and the crisis of the Civil War, had to reconcile um, some competing elements that maybe had been there at the founding. On the one hand, a dedication to notions of individual rights, equality, maybe limited government, but at the same time recognizing that we had to have a true national character, a national purpose, true invigorated national government. And the way Curley pitched it was the Jeffersonian ideal versus the Hamiltonian ideal. And that sort of dialectic or push and pull, and that Lincoln was able to begin the reconciliation of those two diametrical opposing strands at the founding that kind of held the founding together, that the Civil War brought to the fore the fact that one of those probably had to displace the other. And so what they saw in, in Lincoln was um, this phrase, Hamiltonian means for Jeffersonian ends, that we care eventually about the liberation of the individual, but we needed a strong, vigorous national government armed with a strong, vigorous national executive, unafraid of talking about the duties that come with national government. And they saw in Lincoln in that way, they argued a blueprint for progressivism. But my argument has always been, and I've argued this for years, that in in appealing to Lincoln, they often subtly redefined Lincoln's thinking. And, and the way in which they did it was they abstracted away from the fact that Lincoln was working in the language of natural rights, um, language of the Declaration, the language of limited government, the idea right. that there are certain um, fundamental moral and theoretical limits to the objects of our consent. And for, for the progressives, that gets blown wide open. So it's kind of an appeal to Lincoln rhetorically but they depart in many ways from Lincoln's own political principles, at least as I understand them. I and that's a long discussion, but that's that's my well, take at least. It yeah. makes me think of, you know, like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right, where he yeah. quotes in that very, in the first line of the Gettysburg Address, quotes directly from the Declaration of Independence when yeah. he says the new nation was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And right. he, he suggests, seems to suggest in speeches like that, that, look, that was true in 1776, and it's still true in 1863 because it's just true for right. all times and all places. Right. I think I think it's a great example. I'll give you some other great examples. Our listeners, some examples. I think you could um, you could spend a lot of time just looking through Lincoln in the 1850s, especially the Lincoln Douglas debates. I think it's there that Lincoln really articulates his understanding of of the principles of the Declaration is absolutely fundamental to how we understand the ends and means of American democracy. Um, and I think that's where the comparison with the progressives gets a little bit dicey. I think the progressives struggle um, to hang on to Lincoln in that regard.
Right. So Lincoln is a guy, as you say, who wants progress yeah. on, on, for example, getting rid of slavery. He wants progress, but he's not a progressive right. in the way that these guys are. Yeah, I think that's an important. Um, James Caesar, famous political scientist, uh, University of Virginia, um, has said many places in many different ways. That a helpful way to think about this is that we could say that when we say the word progress, it might not contain just one idea. It could have multiple meanings. And, and, and one way we could think about this is an Enlightenment era of progress. We might associate with people like Jefferson. Or, or Lincoln or, or you know, other American founders, which is that, okay, through um, technological advancements, through science, um, think about the Federalist Papers on improvements in the science of politics or through philosophy, we might come to understand the human condition, human nature better, but human nature is unchanging. Um, we might come to understand some of the answers to fundamental questions better, but the standards of of natural right are still the same. We're just coming to understand it better. Progressivism, someone might say, you call it progress with a capital P, holds that the standards themselves are evolving. Our standards of judgment, um, our understanding of what politics, what its purposes are, uh, what its legitimate means are. So it's not just that we're coming to understand unchanging things better, it's that the standards themselves are changing in light of history. And I think that's a pretty good way to start thinking yeah. about different notions of progress. That's a very important distinction. It makes me think, you know, um, that, that the, the progressives themselves then, by their own understanding and certainly their own actions, they are, if not rejecting the American founding, then redefining it yeah. and saying, okay, it needs to be updated in its principles and in its institutions and all the things that it means for America in light of current conditions. And it's going to need to continue to evolve, continue yeah. to change over time. Sure. Um, and that has enormous power in American life in the, in the first half of the 20th century, where, you know, to be re intellectually respectable means to be progressive, Absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if yeah. that's true, um, I'm just thinking that how, what, what effect, sketch a, a broad canvas here for us, yeah. what effect does the, do the progressives have on the rest of the 20th century in America and things like the New Deal and maybe mm -hmm. even the Great Society? Absolutely. In fact, I, I tend to think of the New Deal and the Great Society as, I don't know what the best word is, so they're, they're, there's some reforming going on, but they're more updated iterations of progressive impulses. And so I think the New Deal is a great place to start. The New Deal and the Brains Trust in and around the New Deal were all, they were progressives. And you'd mentioned the, the, the switch from the term liberal to progressive. But one thing that was happening around the 1930s was there was a switch from the term progressive to liberal. And so um, you can see this in some of FDR's correspondence where he says, quite literally, it's time, high time for us to reclaim um, the term liberal. And his argument is there are liberals and there are conservatives. And his argument is that conservatives are distrustful of the, the rule of the people, direct democracy, and that they're usually oligarchic in some fashion. They're, they're distrustful of the people and they snuggle up to special interests. Liberals, on the other hand, he says, cuts across party. So he mentions Jefferson is a liberal, Jackson is a liberal, Lincoln is a liberal, and his argument is they all have a sort of faith in self-government. And it's a partisan sort of you know, rhetorical trick that he's playing, but um, these are progressives that are forming the New Deal. Um, there's are famous examples in which they said, all we're trying to do is to put into practice the teachings of progressive John Dewey. Um, and so, really? wow. yeah, it's amazing. And so I think the, I'll just say this, I think the reliance on a powerful rhetorical president as sort of a rhetorical moral leader of public opinion, um, informing the people of the problems that are to be solved, most of them economic problems, 
and then arming um, newly developed in the form of the New Deal, the ABC agencies, newly developed administrative agencies with broad discretionary powers given to the president to help run those agencies. Um, that's the progressive blueprint. I mean, that's that I often say that the, the Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal is the putting into practice of the vision of the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Wilson got partway there, but the Great Depression gave an opportunity for the American presidency and, and administrative government to become exactly what Wilson had advocated in his own academic writing. And so there's a large similarity between the progressive movement and the New Deal. But one thing I think that's a little different in the New Deal is for many progressives, there was because of this, this suspicion of rights language, there was a, a, a rather an ambivalence about rights language. You often see progressives balking at even talking about the notion of rights because rights would often entail something, an area into which government ought not to tread. And I think FDR and his speechwriters um, figured out very quickly that that doesn't fly very well in Peoria in the sense that Americans like to talk about rights. And so I'm not saying it's underhanded, but, but there's a rhetorical need to snuggle up to the idea of rights that many progressives didn't undertake. And so FDR and his speechwriters are much more um, willing to say, as you'd said earlier, Jeff, that we're merely continuing in the tradition of the founding with some updates and some tweaks. And the best example of this, and I know you, you teach this as well, Franklin Roosevelt's Commonwealth Club address in 1932 on the campaign trail. He argues that all we're doing is updating the terms of the social contract defined in the Declaration. Now, he gives it that Wilsonian spin and sort of denatures the whole, the whole process, but nevertheless, it claims to be following in the footsteps of, of the signers of the Declaration. And so there's a a readiness to talk about the founding in a way that some progressives worried about. So that's that's one element. You mentioned the Great Society. I think in some ways it's a continuation of that, of that same notion of re, uh, sort of re-evaluating social contracts. But I think, again, the Great Society goes just a step further in arguing that um, our rights aren't merely political, our rights aren't merely economic, but they're also, I think, um, there's a right to spiritual and psychological satisfaction. I think if you read the Great Society Address at the University of Michigan, um, 1963, um, 64, good example, um, that there's a certain uh, thrust to the Great Society that says we're trying to fulfill the needs, not just of the body, but of the spirit. And in 64, Johnson said that all of the goods that I promised in the Great Society ought to be understood as civil rights. So we're not just talking about voting rights or non-discrimination on the basis of race. We're talking about things like the right to um, adequate health care, the right to an education, the right to rest and relaxation, some of the things we might associate with FDR's economic bill of rights, but it goes beyond that to um, beyond material goods. Right. And, I'm and I thinking think, even of yeah. rights like to uh, cultural enjoyment. So Absolutely. You have the National Endowment for the Arts under yep. Lyndon Johnson, right? Absolutely. As, as part of that. Yeah. And so I think there's a there's both a continuation, but also a subtle reforming of some progressive aims, but I think they all rely on the form of government that the progressives would have advocated, which again is a, a presidency-centered um, administrative, national administrative apparatus to make sure that what we might call entitlements becomes the language of rights. And so a lot of what politics becomes are presidents pitching to the American people, either on the campaign trail or while in office, what their rights are. And then we're going to put the federal government in job of making sure those rights are secured. And so we might think of it as some people would say it's an empty vessel. Other people say, no, there's a legitimate argument to be made here, but nevertheless, the process is still the same. And I think that stands on the shoulders of the progressives. So there's really a kind of um, 
uh, intellectual and philosophical coherence you're arguing from yeah. the early progressives to the FDR's New Deal in the middle and then to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and even personally from Woodrow Wilson to FDR yeah. to, to, uh, to Lyndon Johnson, right? Yeah. They're, they're connected personally in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me wonder though, um, 1964 was a long time ago. Yeah, sure. Almost 60 years ago now. Right, right. But today, again, we have the reemergence post Ronald Reagan of people yeah. who call themselves progressives. Barack yeah. Obama called himself a progressive. Right. Uh, Joe Biden called himself sure. a progressive. Although people, yep. some of his folks said, don't call yourself that too much. We want you to get elected. But, <laughs> <laughs> but within the Democratic Party, for sure, and certainly at least on the American left, yeah. very few people call themselves liberals. Very few people call themselves left or leftists. They yeah. call yeah. themselves progressives. Yeah. What do you attribute the resurgence yeah. of the term progressive to? There's a couple of things that I'm not, this is just, I wouldn't say they're guesses, they're educated guesses, I have some thoughts, but but please push back if you disagree. I'll say this, that I think you mentioned Reagan. I'm only half joking when I say this, the slide of, of Dukakis on a tank goes a long way, right? And so there was, at that time, the term liberal in terms of the way in which the the Republican party was using had become a kind of dirty word. Um, because of the popularity at that time uh, of Reagan. But I think there is an intellectual reason why, especially with, say, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, John Podesta, the Center for American Progress, were using the phrase progressive. And I think at the time, especially with Clinton and Obama, it was the real emphasis on um, the notion that there are certain rights, like the right to health care, that we associated with a prior tradition. That liberalism, in some ways, I think it become associated with a, you know triangulation and a kind of moderate conversation with the right and trying to decide what's the best path to follow, but a sort of uncompromising support of a more active government to secure things, not just healthcare, but certain notions of what they often call positive liberty, that your liberty really is the result, not of some prior condition that you would have by nature, but rather it's the creation of government. And that government in a negotiation with the people is best able to decide what that liberty is. That's a progressive notion. So I know that in the era of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, the word progressivism was often, often, often tied to a notion of universal health care. And so I think part of that was very, very deliberate. I think some of it was a rhetorical need, right, that liberal had become, you know, polling somewhere said liberal was a liability. But I do think, um, especially in recent years, it's, it's been a very deliberate intellectual move. And, and you mentioned 1964 being a long time ago. Absolutely true. Um, I think now the the real question to sort of be thinking about is, you know, the contemporary environment we're in of identity politics is in some ways indebted to the 60s, but it's also transcended the 60s and become something all its own. And some people say that is a current wave of contemporary progressivism or liberalism that, that needs to be explained and better understood. You know, its roots, where it comes from, how is it indebted to prior progressive movements? We know that the progressives themselves, um, in terms of practice, were not exactly I mean, it's very in vogue now among teachers to suggest that, say, the progressives were not exactly um, have the best track record with regard to things like race, um, for example, and Wilson's refusal to desegregate the the um, federal bureaucracy. Right. So like that's that, so that early okay. progressives on matters of race were actually not what we would call progressive. Precisely. That's, that's exactly right. So when we teach the in MAG, that becomes a big topic of conversation. What folks think of as a progressive, they realize it isn't quite what they thought. When they go reading Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, um, so, so again, the term is the term changes with the times. I mean, you're right about that. Well, all right. So uh, the the legacy of the progressives for today, 
I'm thinking of Bill Clinton declaring the era of big government is over. Right. Right. Right? And partly in reaction to the the Reagan revolution, right? Because you couldn't be a big government liberal. Um, But then we do have people like Barack Obama who come out and say, no, we need to boldly reclaim this mantle of progressive. And he links himself back to people like FDR and says, yeah, we need national government to secure some of these rights, like the right to universal health care, which Bill Clinton kind of punted on. But we're really going to do now. Um, But is it true then that today's progressives really are in an unbroken line from progressives like Woodrow Wilson? Or are there differences between a progressive in in the 21st century now? and a progressive a hundred years ago. How are they alike and how are they different? I think they might be, well, I'll say this. If you go back and read people like John Dewey and Wilson, they often said that the ends of government might change and evolve with time. So they argue that really what we're after is, and I'm quoting Wilson here and Dewey, is the equalization of opportunity for individual fulfillment. That's Dewey, the, the, the unleashing of the individual. And that depending on what the circumstances are, you might need to have different kinds of policies or arrangements to make sure that the individual can be everything that, you know, Jason or Jeff want to be in light of current circumstances. If that's true, then that's a vessel that's going to change and mold and, and for lack of a better term, develop over time. That, I think, is something that, that explains what you have among old progressives, New Deal liberals, you know, LBJ liberals, contemporary progressives. What's uniting all of it, I think, is the idea of the liberation of the individual in light of circumstances. And the way in which you're going to do that is through a particular way of thinking about the organization, especially of the federal government. Um, There is one thing we haven't, one topic we haven't broached, and that's that those means for a long time, whether it be economic liberation, or we might say that it's spiritual or psychological liberation in the 1960s, or today it's another form of liberation, be it perhaps psychological um, or with regard to race, gender, sexuality, identity politics, that kind of liberation. The one wrinkle that I'm seeing from the 19, say middle 1940s forward is contemporary progressivism is much friendlier to adding to this apparatus of a rhetorical president and administrative agencies, um, a Supreme Court to help them out. Um, one thing about the old progressives, uh, say Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, was a real ambivalence and downright hostility in some cases to the Supreme Court and courts in general, because courts at that time were often using the language of rights to strike down progressive legislation. After the court packing plan in 1937, after some changes in the way the court thought about living constitutionalism, I think progressives came to understand that if we can capture the court, then we have yet another ally in redefining what liberty means. And that's been a long part of what the history of modern judicial review is about, is defining liberty, either under the language of substantive due process or equal protection or whatever it happens to be. And so I think contemporary progressives are much friendlier, and it's why we see today, you know, the battle between left and right and five, four courts and all of that is everyone's decided that if we can capture the court, um, then we can either pursue reform or get in the way of progressive reform. But I think modern judicial review has everything to do um, with defining what liberty means. Um, and oftentimes for a long time, I think, in, in service of progressive reform. And so that, that explains in some ways why the, 
the court is such a battleground since the 1940s. Well, it, that's fascinating to me because when I think of, you mentioned liberation of the individual, economic liberation, um, uh, social liberation, psychological liberation. Um, now it's come down in 2022 to gender liberation. Right. Um, but there is this other aspect. I was thinking about an old-fashioned, what I think of as an old-fashioned progressive candidate like Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. You know, when I heard him running in 2020, it was almost like listening to speeches from 1912. <laughs> sure. I mean, it was really remarkable yeah, how yeah. Um, how much of a progressive he sounded like and who openly was. Yeah. But I remember this one moment in the campaign where he was talking about all lives matter mm -hmm. because that's a kind of universal position and view, right? right that right. a progressive would adopt as the right. liberation of all individuals from oppression. And someone jumped on the stage and actually interrupted him and said, no, 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 that's not true. Black lives matter. Right. right. Because that was that moment in American history back in 2020. Yeah. But it was interesting to me that an old, what I think of as an old fashioned progressive like Bernie Sanders hadn't quite come to grips with some of the new reality right. of progressive thinking in, in 2020. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I don't have much to say in response other than to say it's a, it's a great observation. Um, there is something and I think the contemporary language and sort of thrust of identity politics that is it at least sees itself at odds um, with the prior generation of progressivism, um, I think. And, and I'm still figuring that out myself, you know, watching these things as they unfold on the ground. And, and one worries about it, uh, you know, some of some of those some of that rhetoric is what's what's been interesting on college campuses. And it's not like we haven't seen it before, but how. Um, Frank, um, some reformers on left and right are these days about it really being a matter just of political power. That if I can if I can get enough political power to shut you up, I'll do it. And and as an educator and as someone a concerned citizen, you know those are the kind of things that I, I most worry about. I do worry about in contemporary um, political circles if that's not uh, becoming more prevalent. And I think if that's the case, it, it it is it is worth thinking about. What what do you think then is the legacy of the progressive movement going forward now? from the in the 21st century what what elements and strains of progressive thinking do you think will remain powerful and important in shaping american life yeah i i think the the idea that presidents especially are rhetorical leaders and defining and supposedly educating people about what their rights are and then putting into action a federal government that's meant to secure those rights and i think that has been at least in my lifetime if we study presidential rhetoric, I think it's one of the greatest legacies of the progressives. I think another legacy is in the classroom. Um, I think the intellectual legacy of progressives is just as strong as it ever, ever was. Um, the notion that the you know, documents of the American founding are merely relics of the, the cold dead hand of the past, ready to be transcended in light of contemporary concerns and passions, I think is, is a part and parcel of the progressive rhetoric. And I think is still very much alive in college classrooms and history departments, political science departments, um, social sciences, and increasingly literature departments. Um, that's something just in my, my daily life, being someone who, who travels around college campuses and talks to students and teachers, that seems to be um, a big part of the legacy of the progressives. Um, although it's, you know, there's a, an interesting uh, story on this, that, and I know you're familiar with it, but years ago, there was a really seminal book on the Declaration of Independence written by a historian named Carl Becker in the 1920s. And he had said in sort of the full, um, full-throated progressive rhetoric, he said, to ask whether the principles of the Declaration are true in 1922 is a meaningless question. It was fine for 1776, but it's pointless to ask that question now. 
Um, 20 years later, he was asked to write um, a new edition of the book uh, to update it, and it was in 1942. And he wrote a new preface to the book and said, now when I look at the threat of fascism in Europe, it dawns on me, I'm paraphrasing, that maybe it does matter if people think they have natural rights to liberty, and natural rights to the pursuit of happiness and, and life. And so he says, maybe it's not as meaningless as, as we once thought. And so I, I hope that that's something, not that I would ever want um, tragedy and, and tyranny to make people reevaluate their principles, but I do hope that we can, uh, we can realize it's not a meaningless question to ask whether these things are true. Yeah. Very powerful. And a very powerful and illuminating insight into the progressive movement, what it means to be a progressive, and the legacy of the progressives for today. Jason Jibbenen, thank you so much for joining us on The American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. This was great. I was glad to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.